Welcome to Unbreakable Spirit, stories of inspiring and thriving with Jennifer Seven, co-author of a book that is part of the Sisterhood Folios, a number one international bestseller. This is a podcast about real women who've overcome tremendous obstacles and come out on the other side to thrive. Whether their hardships were financial, relational, or health, these women dug deep and found the light out of the dark to rise from the ashes, to find the ability to forgive, to love, and to live an authentic, joyful life. Now, here is your host, Jennifer Seven. Hello, Unbreakable Spirit listeners. I am really, really excited to have a very special guest with us today. We are on episode number 21 of Unbreakable Spirit, and I have Dr. Lise DeGeer here with us today. And let me tell you just a little bit about Lise, and then we'll jump into her story. Dr. Lise is actually a clinical psychologist. She has her own private practice, and she is the lone surviving child of gifted yet unsettled and iconoclastic parents. After being severely burned in a fire, she spent most of her childhood in the hospital undergoing countless surgical procedures. She went on to graduate from Tufts University, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, and she earned her doctorate in clinical psychology from Hahnemann Widener University. For the past 20 years, she's actually been in solo practice in New Jersey, and she is the author of her personal memoir, Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. She's been on television, podcasts, and radio. She's been in multiple publications, and I am just so honored to have her here with us today. She also has a blog about psychological resilience issues and is a national keynote speaker. And on a personal note, she's married to her wonderful husband, Douglas, her happily ever after husband, and has two amazing daughters, Julia and Anna, and a rambunctious dog, and she lives currently in Pennsylvania. So welcome, Dr. Lise. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be with you today. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here and really curious to hear your story because it sounds pretty intense. So I'm going to let you just take us back in time and start with just telling us your story. Sure. So my story begins on a summer day when I was four years old. My family had just gone on vacation. It was our first night out and we were staying on this lovely lake, Lake Winnipesaukee. Some of your listeners might know that in New Hampshire. It was a beautiful summer evening and we're out on the sort of front porch of this cabin overlooking the lake and my mother decided it was time to you know, start making dinner. And so she rummaged around the cabin for something that she thought was lighter fluid. Mm -hmm. And she and I stood on one side of the porch and I was right next to her again, just four years old. So she took this lighter fluid, quote unquote, poured it on coals, tried to light them, nothing happened. She took the lighter fluid, which actually turned out to be highly flammable household solvent. Mm poured it on the coals again. And at that point, there was a giant burst of flame, which enveloped my mother and me. And in that moment, my mother uh, realized that the only way to save herself was to run through the wall of flame and right down into the lake. That was the only exit. And that's what she did. But she left me in the fire. Oh, wow. Which tells you something uh, about my mother. And we can come back to that at some point. 
But at any rate, my father realized that I was trapped and alone and he ran around and figured out a way to kind of reach me from behind and he pulled me through the fence and threw me in the lake and I was saved. And you were still on fire. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. We were taken to the local hospital and they said, there's nothing we can do for these people. Mm. So they transferred us to, you know, what what was actually at the time the best hospital for burns in the country and maybe in the world. It was Mass General Hospital. We were transferred there and that's, and we were saved. I was burned much worse than my mother. I was burned 65%, third degree burns, 65% of all over my body. And I, I came out of that fire with uh, my, my lower lip was burned away, my chin, my neck, my arms were fused to my sides. Ugh. And that began a very, very long journey of uh, reconstruction and surgery. And I spent really all of my childhood, a fair amount of my adolescence, even into my 20s, going back and forth, having surgeries, going back and forth, having surgeries. But that's actually only one part of my story, which is really a story of a lot of trauma and yet a lot of hope. Yes, because I'm sure all that, from what I understand of burns, there's grafting there. It's. I, I think at first you have no sensation, right? Because your your nerves are damaged and you can't feel. Well, um, not really. I there certainly are times when you can be burned so severely that the nerves are gone and you don't feel. But generally speaking, first of all, that's the worst scenario because all your nerves are damaged and you can't feel, and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, no, your nerves are, they're intact and causing you tremendous and horrible pain. Tremendous and horrible pain. And you were four, yes. which is four years old. Yes. And was your mother in the hospital with you, at least in the beginning, or were you separated? My mother was in the same hospital, but she did not come to see me very often, mm-hmm. although she could have. Okay, so more to this story. My my mother really had a lot of great limitations as a mother. She was an incredible human being, but she was not capable really of putting other people's welfare above her own. And of course, when you were a mother, I don't know if you are a mother, Jennifer, but that is kind of the job description. Yes, for, you know, I, a good I am. Or so, uh, mother so of three. Was, <laughs> yeah, right. She was not capable of that, and she did a lot of damage to me and to my brother. Oh, I was going to ask you if you had a sibling. Yeah, I had. I had an older brother. He was not burned in the fire, but he was also traumatized and 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 damaged, and he eventually died tragically young which is another part of my story oh I'm so sorry yeah so I I want to just kind of pause and say that although I could really sort of go on and list even more trauma because there's been a lot my point in writing my memoir flashback girl was my lived experience and also my experience as a psychologist that people can go through terrible, horrible, terrible, terrible things. And in the long run, they can be well and they can heal and they can have good lives and it can all turn out okay. Not that that's easy and not that that will happen in a year or maybe 10 years or maybe 30. (laughs) 
but that it is possible to heal and be well and have a great life because I do now. And my point in writing the story was to kind of share that with people and say like, look, you too can be sort of the most unfortunate child you've ever seen and still 50 years later, have a great life. So like, don't give up on yourself and don't give up on the people you love. It's healing as possible. Yes, that there's hope. There's always hope. Yes, right. Well, I would love to know how you got to your healing. I think that is a has been a long road for me. I'll start with the fact that I think I was blessed with a certain temperament that has served me well in that I'm I'm just sort of naturally a pretty cheerful and friendly person. And, and that helps, right? Because as I think you've already gathered, I was a neglected child and I really didn't have my family around me the way that I needed. But when you're cheerful and when you're friendly, you attract other people. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I mean, my brother was awesome. My grandparents were awesome. I had friends who were awesome. My uh, plastic surgeon was amazing. I've had a lot of wonderful people in my life that have lifted me up. In addition to that, I've been in a lot of therapy. I'm a psychologist myself. And so I'm not ashamed to say that I think therapy has saved my life. And I think it's has saved many people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I strongly recommend that as part of healing. And I worked hard. There's that too. I think you had this school. desire yeah. to heal because I think, right. Yeah, Because I had a desire to heal because I had hope that that was possible. And your dad in all of this? My dad is such an interesting man. My my dad, all my family is dead. My, my mother, my father, my, my brother, they are all dead. Okay. Uh, my dad was a really super cool guy that if you met as a person, you would just love him. He was a musician. He was the life of the party. He could play any song you wanted to hear on the piano. He was fun. He was a great teacher. He was a college professor, lively, lively man. And he really meant well as a father. He messed up a lot, but he meant well. And I give him a lot of credit because I know how well he meant. Mm-hmm. So you knew he, he had good intentions. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think most people looking at my parents would say like, maybe these two should, should not, are really not ready to have children. And both my brother and I were deeply damaged and he didn't survive. So. So here you are four years old in the hospital for a great period of time. And your mom's not really showing up to nurture you. No. But you had others like your grandparents. Yeah. My, my father came every other, no, my father came every weekend. He came up to see me. When I say came to see me, I should explain. So we were in the hospital in Massachusetts in Boston, but the family home was in New Jersey. And my father was trying to keep his job, mm, which uh-huh. provided our health insurance and all that stuff. So he had to work. So he went home and he worked and he would come up on the weekends and then he would visit me and his wife up there. So my father came on the weekends and other than that, I, I made it somehow. I had a wonderful doctor uh, who was really a very, 
became a father figure for me. And, you know, I had nurses who were nice and I had something that I think was very important, which was a record player. Oh, (laughs) and I don't know if you're a musician or an artist in some way, Jennifer, but I'm, I'm a musician, amateur musician. And that little record player, I think was very important to my well-being. It was, you know, I don't know, this is still 1967 and I don't know how old you are, but it's one of those portable record players. Yeah. It seemed like it sort of looked like a little suitcase. Uh-huh. And um, I had a stack of records and I would get a nurse to put a record on and I would listen to show music and like uh, Cinderella and <laughs> and in that time I could just kind of imagine I was somewhere else and it I think it kind of saved me. Mm -hmm. It allowed you to escape the reality of what you were dealing with. And, and gave me something beautiful to concentrate as I think the arts can sometimes be our saviors in dark times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how long were you literally in the hospital before you were able to come home? So the first time I was there for five months and yeah. And the second time I was there for a month. And then and then there were just many, many operations after that, that if they went well, it would be two weeks. And if they didn't go so well, it would be more like a month. And there was so many operations. And honestly, nobody, nobody counted them. So I'm asked all the time how many. I know it was at least 40 to 50 as a kid. Wow. I'm going to say more like 40 to 60 as as a kid and an adolescent and a young adult. And then I've gone back recently for a whole new series of operations. And that's been another operations and procedures, laser procedures, which if you want to count them, that's been 23. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so because like you said, they had to repair your lip because you had no, your lip was gone. Yeah. Yeah. So what was happening in regards to school? Not much, huh? (laughs) Well, when I wasn't in the hospital, I was going to school. And thank God, like, I was, you know, was a good student. So I could, like, keep up, even though I was in the hospital all the time. And school was, uh, it was not tough academically, because I'm good that way. But it was, there was a lot of bullying when I was a kid. And I always have to say really quickly that the kids who knew me were great. As soon as I could talk to you and make you my friend, we were good. Because again, I'm a friendly, I'm a pretty nice person. Like, do you know what I mean? People liked me as soon as Mm -hmm. we talked. But the kids who didn't know me were horrible. Now, was this because of your burns? I looked, I looked hideous. You looked different. Yeah. Oh, Kids are cruel. It's hard to imagine now because I look, I mean, I'm not saying I look great, but I look so much better than I did. But if you imagine that I look like this. And did you have your hair? I mean, in the beginning, it was all shaved off and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really looked like a a very, very hideous child. And so, you know, kids would run past me screaming, yuck. Oh, (laughs) kids can be so tough. They were horrible. And there was a lot of bullying. And back in that day, there was no school intervention for bullying. Mm -hmm. So now, thank God, many schools anyway, take it quite seriously. 
and they watch out for kids who are being bullied and they, you know, have disciplinary action around that. And I'm, there was none of that. It was yeah, just, especially if you have a medical condition. I mean, right now, I think they are so much more aware and sensitive to that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was very hard. The other thing that I would say, you know, as I got older, partly I looked better and partly kids got to be more mature. So that it wasn't that kind of frank, horrible stuff. But let me tell you, trying to date and I mean, doing all that as a burned woman is not easy. And it's not easy dating, I think, for many women. Right. <laughs> but when you when you really look radically different and and know. making yourself vulnerable to someone to expose yourself, your true self. Yes. Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. That has to be really tough. Yeah. But you were you were moving forward, mm-hmm. doing your school. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I built a good life. I, I went to school. I went to college. I decided I would get my doctorate. I really believe in my profession. And I I, I don't want to say I like skip out of bed to do it, but I, I, I love what I do. And so that has built a good life. I was very pleasantly surprised when I did find love and get married and I have two children. And gradually I just kind of kept you know, moving forward and trying. I think if, if I can get into something that I frequently talk about when I, when I give presentations, I, I want to maybe share with you what I have learned to be the elements of the resilient mindset. Is it okay if I get I would love to hear that. Yes. Okay. So I, I give a lot of presentations now and I talk about my story and then I go into what is resilience. And so, and, you know, I studied it and read about it and stuff. So there's a lot that goes into resilience and some of it we can't control. Like there's a genetic component to resilience and, you know, we can't control our gene pool. And certainly economics help with resilience in that maybe you live in a safer neighborhood or you can afford better, better medical care or that kind of thing. Economics help for sure. Yes. But. There is a mindset to resilience that is actually universal. It's been found all around the world and it has nothing to do with where you're from. And it doesn't even have anything to do with economic means. It's the mindset. And I came up with a mnemonic for that and it's goals plus M&M. And so to spell that out, the G in goals stands for gratitude. The O is for optimism. A is for active coping, L is for love, S is for social skills, and M&M is for meaning making. Mm. And I can explain any of that if you like, but that these are the things that people who are being resilient are doing. And do you think they're doing, some people do this naturally, but then others need to be taught. Yes. Some people do it naturally. And I, when I lecture on this, when I speak to some people who like identify very strongly as being resilient, they're like, that is it. That's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then other people, and I, I work on this, you know, with, with my clients and stuff can actually teach people to be, to have grateful thoughts. Mm-hmm. And you can teach people 
So optimism, for example, is something that I work on with people a lot. And optimism is not, I don't mean that kind of fake phony, like everything's great. Like, I don't mean that at all. But to me, the optimistic mindset is the ability to notice that it could turn out fine. Oh, it's just possible that it could turn out fine. Yes. Yes, exactly. It is possible it could have a good outcome. Mm -hmm. And because if you can't be optimistic that it could have a good outcome, you're not going to try to fix it. That's that the A in goals is for active coping. And that that talks about the ways that people have a problem and do something to help themselves. And some problems can't be helped, but there's always something we can do. Always. Even if it's just, I'm going to make sure I get a good night's sleep so mm -hmm. I can deal with this tomorrow. That's active coping. Yeah. And, and eating properly and little, little things like that. Yes. Even in the midst of the worst disaster, sometimes, a lot of times, actually, that's where I start with people. It's like, okay, what can we do to support your body's health? So you have some strength to deal with this horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And that's active coping. And again, if you can't imagine like, well, I could get through this, you're not going to bother active coping. Yeah. You're going to be like, what's the point? The hell with it. Yeah. So for you, are you a naturally resilient person or did you have to develop these skills as well? I believe that I am a naturally resilient person. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that partly is because of the temperament that I talked about, being cheerful and friendly has certainly helps a person be grateful and be optimistic. I think it has helped me be a good active coper and it definitely has attracted more love to me because people are attracted to people who are happy and grateful, you know, mm -hmm. right? And it has helped my social skills and the meaning making part that I talk about that that isn't that came to me later. How can I make sense of what I've been through? How can I turn this to something good? What so my, my first question would be, so how did you find gratitude in all that you went through? Because that was pretty brutal. Yes. I think sometimes actually when you go through something so horrible when you're young, there can be a silver lining to that in that I'm just so happy to have a pleasant day. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't actually expect everything to go well. Mm. I I think life is super hard. It's mm -hmm. been hard for me. And as a psychologist, I see that it's hard for many people. I don't ex I like when things are fine. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I had a really good day. Yeah. It wasn't a bad day. And sometimes I really have to work on that when I work with clients who, you know, maybe have had a really blessed life for 40 years. And then the, the first thing that goes wrong, they're like completely undone. And I, there's a part of me that has to kind of settle into that and, and just sort of identify with them because there's a part of me that wants to be like, wow, you, you had such a good run. Yeah, like, like really, <laughs> really? <laughs> Did you, didn't you notice how good it was? Yeah. I mean, to every life or, you know, a little rain's going to fall sooner mm -hmm. or later. Yes. And that is the true cycle of life. There is always going to be something. Yeah. And sometimes a lot of some things and sometimes those some things are going to be awful. I'm sorry to say it's mm -hmm. just true. Mm -hmm. I know that for me, I, I had to learn the practice of gratitude. I 
went through a messy divorce and a lot of financial problems. And I was lucky enough to meet this woman. And she said, yeah, I want you to, to start writing down statements of gratitude. I want you to fill up a whole journal of gratitude. And I would just look at her like, why? You know, I was kind of in that, I am not feeling it. <laughs> and I was so upset at that time, but I was determined to feel better. I want, I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make myself feel better. And if you say, if I do this, I'm going to feel better than I was determined. To, I was going to do my homework. I'm, I'm a good homework rule follower. <laughs> and it, it was interesting how it began to shift. And now I look at things very differently. It's, it's like, instead of complaining about the not being able to get a parking space in the holidays, it's like, oh, we did find a parking place. It might be further back, but we got one. It's just seeing the, the good instead of the negative all the time. Right. It, it is a mind shift. And it is a mind shift that people can make. And by the way, it's super good for your health. I mean, the, the, the research on gratitude has found like it, like it, it helps your heart. Mm. It helps your immune system, uh, but optimistic people live longer. They're, these things I'm talking about, it, it doesn't just help your mental health. It really mm -hmm. helps your actual health. And I read something that said, even, even if you're not really feeling the gratitude, just trying to think about gratitude makes a shift in your brain. Yeah. So just the practice of it. And I started with simple things, kind of like what you said, you had a good day. I was like, okay, I woke up this morning, you know, I had food on the table. I have a, a bed to sleep in. Yeah, I had to start really simple. And but then Jennifer, I'm going to challenge you. Those things aren't simple. Yeah. There's, well, people, yeah. there's people all over the world that don't have that. would yeah. be so grateful to wake up in a bed and have breakfast. Mm-hmm. It's not simple. It's actually really great that you were able to notice that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I start sometimes people will be like, I don't have anything to be grateful for. I'm like, are you free? Mm -hmm. Yes. Look at our world right now. Right. Are you in the middle of a war? Right. There's mm -hmm. a lot. <laughs> There's a lot around us that we're not even noticing that other people would give their right eye teeth for if I don't know what right eye teeth are <laughs> yeah yes and uh for the optimism piece I I understand that because I have a son who has struggled with mental health issues and could be very negative and I, that's why I said that it, because the therapist would just say is it just possible that this could be different or and I was so now I will remind him of that because he is very black and white thinking, you know, it's all or nothing. And I'm like, is it just possible? <laughs> and that's really helped him view things differently in a, yeah. in, a, in a better way. So, okay. So that was the G and the O. And what was the A again? A is for active coping. Active coping. Okay. Can you give us some examples of active coping? Yeah. So the idea is that when we have problems, we need to get good at understanding the problem and seeing what we can do about it versus the things we can't. Mm -hmm. uh, so I will often give COVID as an example. We all went through this horrible thing, still going through it. It's not, not like COVID's over. And 
in the middle of this, you know, especially when we were all isolated and home alone and all that stuff, and there was so much we couldn't do, like we couldn't control COVID. So what what could you do mm-hmm. to cope with COVID? So for me, I was like, well, I am going to make sure that I take a walk every day and get outside, get a little fresh air. I can't talk to my neighbors, but I can wave at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that I do that. That was a way of me getting exercise, a little socialization, a little break from being in my house. I also said, well, I have all this time. I was going to do all kinds of exciting things. All the projects. Do. <laughs> yeah. So what can I do? So I started practicing the piano again. I haven't practiced the piano in 20 years. But <laughs> That's it was wonderful. Something that I could do. And it gave me joy and it was nice. And it filled the house with music. Other people appreciated that. So it's basically taking a problem and saying, all right, I accept that 90% of this problem, there's nothing I can do about, but this 10%, there is something and I'm going to do it. And how did you apply that when you were going through this whole burn situation where you were, you, you were so little, but did you... A lot about a lot about good burn recovery rests on patient compliance. The world of of burn care for severe burns is so dark and so grim and so painful and so long. And I, I get into that in my book. If people are curious about it, there's there's a lot about it, what it's like and what you have to go through and everything. So it's this long, arduous process. You do this grafting. Sometimes the grafts don't, they don't take so then you have to do them all over again horrible so it is incredibly important for the for the patient to be compliant Mm -hmm. to rest as long as they're supposed to rest to change their bandages the way they're supposed to to stretch and do the exercises they're supposed to like really exactly as you're supposed to so as the burn person that's part of active coping is like Mm -hmm. i'm going to do my part to take care of my health and that's a good example yeah, that's a great example. And and as this little girl, you, did you get any help with this? Or because, you know, it sounded like your mom wasn't really there to, to help you with all of this. I mean, when I was home, if I had bandages, I will say my mother was the one to change them. So she, it's not that she didn't help me in some ways. I, I was a lot on my own, but it's not like my mother was never there. She 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 did what she was able to do for me. Okay. Okay. Because that would be a lot to have to yeah. manage when you're so little. I just think of you as this little tiny four-year-old. And I was, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to the L again. Love. Love. Yeah, love. So resilient people are people who have loving relationships. They're not alone. They're not isolated. They have relationships. And that supports resilience. One of the things that is really important, though, is that not all relationships are going to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a lot of people, for example, feel like kids who are neglected, like I was, or kids who are abused by their parents, what hope is there for them? But that's not true. Because really, studies have shown that even like really pretty badly neglected kids, as long as they have somebody who is there for them, who believes in them, who supports them, they can make it. That person can be even a teacher or a neighbor or an aunt. 
like, like we are capable of getting through all kinds of things. We need somebody. And it's great when it's your parents. I mean, it's absolutely the best if it's your parents. But if it's not, kids can still make it and we can still make it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the keys to being resilient is not just focusing on the relationships that are disappointing and focusing on them. Like, oh, why isn't my husband this? Or why isn't my husband that? Like, I don't know why he isn't, but I guess he isn't. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other people who love you or maybe other good things about your husband. And, mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of people in our lives, hopefully, who can give us love and support. So for someone that's feeling like they don't have that, where do you tell them to start? Well, first of all, I'm going to challenge you. I think almost everybody has somebody. Has someone. Okay. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I mean, I, I somebody, right? Mm-hmm. A, a child, a friend, a mother, somebody usually everybody has somebody who loves them and that's sort of my point you might not be noticing them mm-hmm. you might be so like i can't you know i'm i'm uh i'm i'm actually in my second marriage i've divorced my first husband i've been through that trauma and a lot of times you know we're really very focused on the relationship that isn't working and it is it's horrible but do you have friends do you have a brother or a sister do you, are there other people i'm gonna almost everybody does have someone there is the very rare person who has nobody. And I feel very badly for those people. Mm-hmm. So just taking the time to pay attention. Yeah. It's shifting your mindset again. Towards, and again, it's the grateful thing. Who is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes when people are feeling so sad and alone that they isolate. Right. So taking that actionable step to... Yes. Connect. Right. Right. And that urge towards self-isolation is is very damaging. And I guess the other thing I would say, if a person really feels like they have nobody, please find a good therapist Mm. because then you already then have somebody who's listening to you and supporting you. And maybe that will help you start to feel like you can reach out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then moving Mm -hmm. to the second part, Mm -hmm. share with us a little bit more about that. The MEM. Oh yeah. Okay. But we miss social skills. Oh, whoops. <laughs> goals, goals plus m M&M. and the social skills part is just to say that resilient people tend to be good with people. Resilient people are good at um, connecting, forming relationships, maintaining relationships, keeping them so that you keep that love in your life. So most resilient people are really good with people. And, and again, I want to say every one of these skills, if you don't feel like you're good at it, you can work on it. I was just going to ask you that if you feel like you don't have good social skills, but that's something you can work on. Yeah, you can work on either by on your own or probably with a good therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the second part, as you were talking about, is the meaning making. Mm-hmm. So that is that. What we've found is that resilient people are people who make some kind of positive meaning out of their negative experiences. And I don't mean like, I'm so glad I'm burned. Like, I'm, I'm, I am not. Like, who would be? Yeah. And horrible. And it still is. It's a burden on me every day of my life. But there has been good that comes out of it. I'm, I'm a really empathic person. Mm-hmm. And I've used that as a skill to help. I don't know how many clients now, 
and I'm good at telling that story. And now I'm using that to try to connect with people, readers and listeners and people come and hear me talk like literally, you know, all over the country, sort of sharing this story of like hardship and resilience and hope. So has that been all bad? No, it hasn't. I don't know why I was given this burden, but I'm using it Mm -hmm. for good. Mm -hmm. And most of us can. I know a lot of people who've been through cancer and then they raise money for people with cancer. Uh I know, I know people who've lost their children. Their children have died young and they have started charitable foundations or some kind of organization that intervenes with bullying. I mean, people can take what they've been through and use it for some good. And ultimately that can be a big part of healing. Yes. I have seen that quite a bit where people have gone through some pretty rough stuff, but then they found a way to, I I guess it's a way to make some meaning out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Like everything you've gone through brings you to this moment. Yeah. And a lot of people find meaning in helping other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a nice thing about us. <laughs> yeah. You know? Wow. So, so to bring it back to you and your family, you know, you mentioned your brother. I don't know if you want to share any of, of his story. Yeah. So my brother was, by all intents and purposes, destined for great things. He was a, a, a genius. I mean, such a genius that 40 years later, people remember how much of a genius he was. Wow. He was an extraordinary intellect, graduated high school in three years, was at the top of his class, got virtually perfect board scores, got into MIT at the age of 17. And in addition to just being wildly intelligent, he was a really great teacher and very helpful. And he was a wonderful musician and he was very kind and intuitive and really great with uh, helping people. And he suffered from depression. He had absolutely no parental oversight. He got into a fair amount of drug use and he took his life when he was 19. That's absolutely tragic. Yes, it was. And I can't imagine the impact of that on you because you said you were close. Yeah. My brother was my best parent. Oh. You know, my father was kind of fun and also sort of a little scary. And my mother was really detached. And my brother was absolutely my best parent. He was only five years older, but he took really good care of me for as long as he was alive. And actually his death is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. I mean, you know, I, I told you all these other things and they were bad, but losing him was the worst. And you were only 14 then, right? 14. Yeah. Mm. And one of the big messages in my book is a repeated lesson because it comes up repeatedly because my brother was not the only person to kill himself. The lesson comes up repeatedly in the book. Don't kill yourself. People don't get over this. Like stay alive. Mm-hmm. Get help. We need you. It's not your time to go. Oh, that is such a powerful message. It seems like we're just losing too many of our young people right now. And just, yes, that is a very powerful 
message and statement is don't don't give up. Right, right. And again, back to the optimism. It is possible things can get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and nothing ever stays the same. So <laughs> it doesn't. Right, right. Even if it seems it can't get better, it's going to change in some way. It just mm -hmm. feels that everything does. Yeah. Yes, it mm -hmm. does. And a year from now, everything can look very different from the way it looks right now. Well, Dr. Lee, what besides that message, which is really powerful, what else would you like to say to our listeners or a message you'd like to leave them with? Mm. So my two messages that I, I think are most vital are one, don't give up on yourself for the people that you love, even if they seem like they are the most unfortunate person you've ever known or you are. Because again, I I was that girl. I was that ugly, neglected, deformed, bullied kid all alone. And 50 years later, I am, I have a beautiful life. So that is possible. So don't give up on yourself. Get help, keep going. And my other message is, if you are in a place where you are not suffering, if you are in a place where life is okay and, and, and you are doing okay, remember to be there for people because our kindnesses can make a huge difference mm -hmm. to people who are suffering. Just the smallest kindnesses sometimes can make a huge difference. So remember that. And if you're doing well, you know, reach out to people. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. that. And they talk about random acts of kindness. Yeah. Like uh, it's happened to me a couple of times, but being in the Starbucks line and someone buys my coffee, it yeah. puts, puts the biggest smile on your face and you have no idea what kind of day you might be going through, but it's just like, wow, wow, that was something good that happened to me. Today. Right, exactly. So doing that for others. Yes. And it yes. doesn't have to be buying coffee, but it just even I think just saying hello to someone or yeah. complimenting them. You look so nice today. Can make yeah. a difference. Simple. There's, there is a woman once. Uh, so I, and I'll never forget this. And again, I'm sure she, she has no memory of this whatsoever. There was one time I was online it, trying to get to the post office to, you know, dump some letters in. And I, I was online and I couldn't get there and it was pouring. I mean, sheets of rain. And the postal worker came out to like empty the box and she saw me waiting and she kind of walked over, you know, took her time to get over to me in the rain and just put her hand out. <laughs> and I just put my, my mail through the window and she grabbed my letters and she smiled and she left. And like, I literally have never forgotten that. Because she didn't have to do that. And she got wetter because she did that. <laughs> yeah. But she saved me and she just put a big smile on her face. Mm. And you made know, your day, right? Good. Yeah. Those things sometimes. Little things. Little things. Yeah. So if someone would like to work with you, what is the best way for them to reach out or how can they work with you? Right. So there's sort of two, there's kind of two things, two ways for me to answer that. The, the first way is I have a psychology practice. I can't just work with everybody because of state licensing laws. Uh, although I am actually 
um, able to work with people across many state lines because of a certification that I have. So that is possible. And if they wanted to work with me, that website is drdegear.com. Okay. Um, so yeah, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. Awesome. Okay. Um, but then also, you know, I really encourage people if you uh, like to read and want to feel some inspiration, I really encourage people to check out either my book, Flashback Girl, which by the way is won three major awards. So awesome. it's really congratulations. It really actually is. You can get um, it on Amazon, I'm assuming. Amazon, yep, uh, barnesandnoble.com, that kind of thing. Also, I put out a blog every other week on sort of, well, maybe a little bit less than every other week right now, but just the same on psychological resilience. And so that's out there and free for anybody who might be interested. I also do a lot of speaking. So if people are interested in having a really great keynote speaker, look me up. Yeah. And uh, where can they find your blog? That's all on my author speaker website, which is my name, leastagear.com. Okay. Awesome. Yes. And again, listeners, I'll put this all in the show notes for you. Dr. Lee, thank you for being willing to share this story. And I love what you came up with. Goals plus M-E-M. M&M. Yep. M&M. <laughs> yep. I should be able to remember that because I love M&M's. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There go. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. think it's such a, a powerful and yet very attainable message. It's something we all can do. And or we, work toward we can work on it like I think a lot of people feel like oh, I'm just not resilient like okay you're not today again that doesn't mean you can't get better at it because really you can mm -hmm. this is mindset it's not magic mm -hmm. yeah yeah well, well thank you so much for having me I really appreciate the chance to connect with you and your listeners and well thank you and again I appreciate your taking the time to share your story with us so you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, you as well. Thank you for joining us on Unbreakable Spirit. To learn more about Jennifer and her holistic weight loss approach, visit her website at sevencompany.com. That's the number seven, company.com. And please join us for our next episode where we'll hear from more women who overcame hardship and learned how to thrive.